You may be seated. My name is Ethan Fordham. I serve as an elder here. Just grateful uh, to see each and every one of you, to have you all here with us this morning as we hear from the Lord, as we enter into his worship, as we praise him, and now as we continue to hear from him. If you would open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 24, we are looking at verses 29 through 31. 29 through 31. Uh, uh, just three short verses, uh, three short complicated verses, and a complicated passage, right? We are currently in Matthew 24, which is sometimes referred to as the Olivet Discourse. It was a, a teaching that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives, a well-known and difficult prophetic teaching of Jesus. We have heard the past couple of weeks, Jesus is correcting the disciples' mistaken idea that the destruction of the temple and the coming of Christ as a king would happen at the same time, that they were the same thing. As we hear from Jesus, we come to understand that his words certainly find fulfillment in the destruction of the temple, but they are not yet fulfilled in a complete sense then. There is still yet greater fulfillment. There is an already and not yet fulfillment in these words. And that the already makes the not yet certain. So what is already? What is not yet? Jesus tells us, this morning, Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. This is the word of the Lord. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of hev the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from all the four, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This is the word of God, and all of God's people say, Amen. Let's pray and ask for the Spirit's assistance this morning. Our great and merciful God, Holy Spirit, who does give life and light, Lord, we are dull this morning. We need you to sharpen us. Our eyes are closed, Lord. We need them to be open. Lord God, give us life. Give us light this morning in your word. We ask this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. The latest images from the James Webb Telescope are astounding, right? They are incredible, right? Some of them are going to be up there. This one here, right? We have just an incredible just picture of stars and galaxies in incomprehensible space. And then we have others that look uh, like this one. It's a cluster of galaxies. Like, who, what, what? 
It's a cluster of galaxies, one of which is currently, or was at another time, I'll let the scientists work that out, uh, being consumed by a black hole. And then we have pictures of, of nebulas, right? Look at that. It is astounding. The created order, the cosmos, it seems incomprehensible and completely unshakable. But Jesus says this morning, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars of heaven will, the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Jesus pictures the end as a cosmic upheaval, a total and complete cosmic upheaval, a drastic, devastating event. What, what is Jesus referring to? What would it be like to witness such cosmic upheaval? He must be referring to something far off, right? Something far into the future, something that definitely couldn't have happened yet, right? It would be a mistake to think that, cos this co that cosmic shaking events have not taken place, right? Even as we think back to the garden, surely the fall of Adam was a cosmic upheaval the likes of the, which the created order had not seen. It was a cosmic upheaval when the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. That was earth-shattering for the Jews at the time. Oh, and let's not make any mistake. Nothing, neither past nor future, is a significant cosmic upheaval as the Son of God taking on human flesh and dying on a cross. Cosmic upheavals have occurred. And here Jesus is simply referring to the next one, one in this history of redemption. Jesus, we see, is referring to something in the first century as we have been going over, right? He's distinguishing between the destruction of the temple and his final coming. And here he's describing the destruction of the temple. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Well, what days? Well, we come to understand that there was great tribulation and turmoil in the years leading up to the destruction of the temple. That mothers in the city of Jerusalem were literally eating their children because it was so rough. That was a tribulation. Then it ends with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And in the destruction of the temple, there is a kind of cosmic upheaval. The temple is a sign of God's covenant presence with the people of Israel in the land. But all of that was over with its destruction. And it was a type of end-of-the-world judgment and the ushering in of a new order. No more would God reside with one people in one place. Jesus says with the destruction of the temple that God's kingdom, it's expanding. 
It's going beyond. It's expanding. That the reign of God is on the move. That the rule of Jesus over his people will no longer be captured in one ethnic group in one singular place. This cosmic shift, friends, has served for the salvation of many. For the salvation of the Jew, certainly. But also the salvation of the Gentile. Here we are. This is one of my favorite things to say when I preach. I don't know why. But here we are. A bunch of Gentiles sitting in North Syracuse, New York, 2,000 years later. It's because there was a cosmic upheaval. And God's kingdom expanded. The judgment on the temple has become the salvation of many. And that includes us. So friends, already there has been a cosmic upheaval. The destruction of the temple was an unmistakable cosmic upheaval that led to a worldwide kingdom. So make no mistake, Jesus' rule over you in this present, this present cosmic kingdom is certain. It's certain. But friends, make no mistake. There is yet to be an ultimate cosmic upheaval. A time is still yet to come when the universe will cease to be as it is now. A time when everything will change. An upheaval that will make all things new when Christ ushers in a new heavens and a new earth, a new cosmic kingdom. Friends, this should be a comfort to us, a great comfort to us, because after the tribulations in our days, in our days, the tribulations that have been since Christ's first coming and will be until his second coming, they will come to an end. This suffering of the present age will end. It will end with a cosmic upheaval. That the world, its systems, the enemies of God and of his saints, those who persecute you, the sins that we struggle with in the flesh, those things will come to an end because Christ is going to usher in a new cosmic kingdom, that there will be a final cosmic upheaval and it will serve as our ultimate redemption. Already, Friends, already there has been a cosmic upheaval. The destruction of the temple was a cosmic upheaval. But Christ is going to come back, and he's going to do it again in a final way when he returns for us in a new cosmic kingdom. Friends, make no mistake, Jesus' return for you is certain. And it most certainly comes with a new cosmic kingdom. Jesus goes on. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Okay. Okay. Now we get it. All right. Now we get it. Now we get it. Right? Jesus must be referring to his second coming right? It seems so clear. It seems so explicit. I mean, this hasn't 
This hasn't happened yet, right? Jesus here employs Old Testament language from the prophet Daniel. Daniel prophesied when the Israelites were in exile in Babylon. And in the seventh chapter, Daniel's vision, he sees one, he says he sees one like a son of man coming up to the ancient of days to receive from him a domain, glory, and kingdom which cannot be taken away. A kingdom in which are people from every tribe, every nation, every language. A people that will serve him. But that, that, isn't, that doesn't sound like anything else, does it? Of course it does. Of course it does. Something interesting we read here is that when Jesus says he's coming on the clouds with glory, does not say exactly where he's going because location is actually absent, which is a sort of interesting omission. Only that his coming is on the clouds of heaven. Interesting, we read Matthew 26, verse 64, in Jesus' conversation with Caiaphas before his crucifixion. He says, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds with, uh, on the clouds of heaven. Right? It's sort of tempting to think that Christ's activity since his ascension into heaven is sort of just like a, like he's just like waiting around, right? Like checking his watch. Is it time yet? Can I come yet? As if he's in some sort of static existence, just sort of chilling. But the reality is, when Christ ascended on high, he received from the Father a kingdom, a domain, an authority. Friends, this might sound provocative, but Jesus has come. He's come up to his Father to receive a kingdom that cannot be taken away, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He has come to, in that to judge unbelieving Israel and the destruction of the temple. He has come. He's not waiting around. That as a king, he is always moving. Always moving, always as a king, defending his people, always acting on their behalf, always ruling from heaven now. And in this we read that the tribes of the earth will mourn, that during Christ's ruling now, the tribes of the earth will mourn. The reality is that Jesus is coming and judgment is not a happy moment for everyone. He came to judge those who persecuted him and his saints in the destruction of the temple. But their judgment became the saints rejoicing. And those who caused the saints to mourn are those who turn to mourning. And the saints mourning turns to joy. Brothers and sisters, already Jesus has come to his Father in heaven to receive a kingdom. And as a king, he has executed judgment on the temple and continues to execute judgment on the world. This king who rules now 
most certainly rules over you now. That his power and rule over you should turn your sorrow into joy. That his kingly watch over you should bring you peace in every trial, in every circumstance. I don't know what you're going through this morning. And in so many ways, it doesn't matter what you're going through this morning. Because Christ knows. And his kingly rule brings peace to that sorrow. Joy to that suffering. Contentment and rest to that restlessness. Jesus is king and is watching over you now in power and glory. Make no mistake, Jesus' rule over you is certain, and it most certainly brings joy and peace. But a day is coming. A day is coming. A day in which the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. A day when all people will see him coming. The sign of his coming will be unmistakable. And it will be a coming in great judgment. A coming that brings mourning. I think Matthew Henry wrote this concerning his coming. He says, sooner or later, all sinners will be mourners. Penitent sinners look to Christ and mourn after a godly sort. And they who sow in those tears shall reap shortly in joy. Impenitent sinners shall look unto him whom they have pierced. And though they laugh now, shall mourn and weep after a devilish sort, an endless horror and despair. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, Jesus will come. The first time he came as a servant, this next time he comes as a judge, as a ruling king to judge the living and the dead. He will come to judge every last one of us. The nations will mourn at the sight of him. Friends, if you repent of your sins and turn to Christ in faith for the forgiveness of sins, you will find that this king, when he comes, will not come against you. He'll come for you. He'll come for you. Brothers and sisters, our king will come for us. He will come to judge the sins of the world. His rule will come to its culmination, and we will see him. This is our great hope, isn't it? that we will see our God, that when we see him, we shall be like him, and those who hope in him thus purify himself as he is pure. We read in 1 John that all of our hopes of entering into eternal joy will be complete, that when we come into this kingdom, that we will be wrapped up into the love of God, the love that the Father has eternally had for the Son, we will receive an unbreakable, unshakable, incomprehensible, infinite, and eternal divine love. Is this not our great hope when Jesus returns? It is. 
It is. Make no mistake. Jesus return, will return for you. It is most certain. And it most certainly gives us hope. We're going to verse 31. Jesus says, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Okay, 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 okay. Okay, I know this one. We all know this one, right? We know this one. Loud trumpet call, right? He's going to gather his people, right? He's going to send out his angels, yeah? This, this hasn't happened yet. What happens, or rather, what happened when the temple was destroyed? What significance does that have? Already, we know that it had cosmic significance, that it was a sign of God's kingdom expanding. And that its destruction, we have seen in that, that Jesus is king and that he brings judgment that he rules over the nations. So now what? What about after that? Found, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but Mike Kruger, I think, helpfully states um, that the history of Israel is one of a movement inward. That the Egyptians were brought out of, the, out of Egypt and they were gathered as a nation and that they went into the land of Canaan. And that in Canaan, there is a significant movement into the city of Jerusalem. And that the most significant movement was a movement into the temple. That the temple was of cosmic, national, and covenantal importance. That people could come in, but no one was going out. The ministry of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection was a massive hinge on the door of that history. Christ's call to his disciples is to go out. Not to come in, but to go out. We see this in the entire book of Acts. We see this at the end of Matthew. He says, go to the nations, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. And then what do we see in the book of Acts? We see that very thing happening from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the end of the world. We see them go out and we see with them the gospel going out, preaching and teaching, people being saved from sin, turning to Christ in faith and repentance, that the gospel was going out with them, and that when persecution hit, they spread out even more. And with the destruction of the temple, Christians already knew because of Jesus' words that they were to flee they fled. And what was the, the effect of their fleeing? The gospel going out. 
all ready. Jesus has sent his people out to gather his people through the proclamation of the gospel. We often think of evangelism in this sort of, as this sort of tactic where I'm just going to do my best. I'm going to do my best to gather up people, people for Jesus. But Jesus says that he's the one doing the gathering. Evangelism is just being used by God as a means for the word to get out, for the Lord to call his elect from the four corners of the world. And he uses means because God doesn't just like blip people into Christ. God doesn't really do many things in an immediate way. He does them in immediate ways. He uses means. And evangelism is the means through which he gathers his people, as people hear and respond to the gospel. Friends, in every way, in every way, we have a guarantee in our evangelistic efforts. Do you realize that? We have a guarantee because Christ is the one who's gathering. The Spirit, the Word, is the one that gives new life. It is not dependent on our eloquence. It is not dependent on having the best arguments. It's not dependent on having every or knowing every argument. Friends, it's dependent on God's work in gathering. If you're a Christian, or if you're one of Christ's disciples, friends, you are called by Christ in this passage to go out and to evangelize, to tell people the gospel. Because, friends, we, we don't know who the elect are. We don't. That information belongs to God, to our sovereign God, to our good God. Friends, it could be your unbelieving neighbor who has never heard the gospel. It could be your friend who you've been telling the gospel to for the last decade. It could be your adult child who has not lived out the faith that you raised them in, and yet you pray, and yet you call back to Christ. Friends, Christ will gather. And in that we can have confidence and great hope. Already Christ has called you to spread the gospel so that he could gather his people up. So we go out as we're called by Christ in these words. Friends, don't be mistaken. Christ's rule is over you. Sorry, Christ's rule over you is certain. And he has certainly called you to proclaim the gospel. And yet, one day, that trumpet will blast. That trumpet will blast in unmistakable clarity. And the Lord will send his angels out to the four corners of the world to gather his people. Friends, he will, he will gather up those whom he has loved since before the foundations of the world. He will 
gather them to himself. He will not lose a single one. Do you know this about yourself? We sometimes worry about the doctrine of election, don't we? It's a hard doctrine. Even as we confess it, as we believe it, it's a difficult doctrine. Because we worry. We worry about people in our lives, about our parents, grandparents, our friends, our neighbors. We ask questions like, are they elect? What if I'm not elect? Friends, are we now believing and trusting in Jesus for the fulfillment of all of God's promises, even eternal life? Are we? If the answer is yes, that we do not worry, but we trust and we hope. We trust and we hope. We rest in God's love and power to save us from our sins and to gather us unto himself into his eternal love. What hope and rest we ought to have in such a doctrine because it's a promise. It's a promise. I don't have to worry about whether or not Jesus is going to change his mind. People in our lives change their minds. We change our minds. We experience a life of change. We live. We die. We know nothing but change. We know that our unchanging God has an unchanging love for an unchanging people. We trust him in that. We live in that. We rest in that. Friends, do not be mistaken. Christ's return for you is certain, and he will certainly gather you up into his arms. Already, there has been a cosmic shift in the destruction of the temple. A cosmic kingdom has been ushered in. Already, Jesus rules and reigns as king, having received from his father a kingdom. Already as a king, his kingdom is expanding. Jesus sends out his disciples to gather up his people in the proclamation of the gospel. And yet one day, we know that the sun is going to be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. And the Son of Man will be seen coming on the, pow- on the clouds with power and glory. And he will gather up his people and bring them into eternal rest. This is our great hope, friends. Christ's rule over you and his return for you is most certain. Let's pray this morning. We ask, Lord God, that you would give us great hope. That you would have mercy and grace on us in this life as we struggle with the flesh. As we shrink back in fear. As we worry. As we live as though you are not seated on your throne. As we live as Life is just the status quo, the 
as usual, just the simple going in and coming out. But, oh, Lord God, give us a heavenly perspective. That, Christ, you rule now. That you rule over us. And, oh, Lord, give us hopeful expectation, always expectation that shapes and directs every thought, every word, every action in our lives. The great hope that you're going to return for us. Please, Lord, be glorified and honored. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.